All right, welcome to week number what, nine, I think. So we've uh, been wandering away through the New Testament, the order it's written. Uh, so you get me back this week. Becca's next week. Uh, Randall is currently in Israel. I told him he could Zoom it. <laughs> so we're all set up for Zoom, but uh, he's, he's out for the next two weeks over there doing the tour. And then so next week's Becca, then me, and then you get Randall for two weeks. Randall loves anything that John has written. So when we get to things that John has written, Randall snags those right away. <laughs> so, yeah. So the last four weeks of class, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, and the, and the Gospel of John, last five weeks of class, is all Randall. <laughs> so if you like Randall, show up in May. If you don't like Randall, take May off. Because it's all, it's, all, it's all Randall. All right, so today... In May? Pretty far away, isn't it? Uh, yeah. How, how many books are in the New Testament? I guess so. 27. That's, I'm pretty sure that would take 27, 28, that'd be like 28 weeks, right? So, and we figured the elders are going to talk during the month of January, like they always do. Uh, and so, we probably won't, after we finish before Christmas, we probably won't start up again until February. If the elders are not speaking this year, uh, then we'll get done. You'll, you can take the month of April off because Randall will be all April. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just show back up in April, whichever you prefer. <laughs> all right. So and as you've noticed, the first part of the New Testament is very heavy Paul. Paul is the guy who wrote a lot very early on. I know the first book is James. And then James doesn't write anymore, but we know James has a, a tremendous influence on the church. Uh, and then you start seeing all the Pauline books from Paul's writings. And then uh, the, you know, Mark writes the first of the Gospels. And then a couple years later, two to five, Matthew writes his Gospel. And so that's kind of where we're at. The, uh, the church is expanding out of uh, what Palestine, Judea, into Syria, now into the original Greek world. And this week, obviously, we're going to Rome. Let's see how fast my computer works. Not very fast. Now, like everything in the, during the, the period of the Romans, you wanted to be in Rome. Maybe. Uh, because everything runs out of Rome. All the power runs out of Rome. All the money runs out of Rome. So if you can get to Rome, uh, that's where you want to be. The, uh, Rome in and of itself is very different than any other city Christianity could start it in. In the first century, uh, the biggest three cities were Rome, uh, Antioch of Syria and Alexandria of Egypt and Baghdad. Uh, however, Baghdad's not inside the Roman Empire at this point. So you have the big three cities. And uh, Christianity, I'm trying to force it to switch, I guess it won't. Uh, Christianity starts in what are relatively small cities. You know, Jerusalem 
is essentially a village. You know, we, we think of it, to, you know, we tend to put today's pictures on. You know, it's a, it's a city of a million people. First century, it's a, it's a, it's a village of about 35,000. And then as you expand out, they really are hitting smaller cities. Even uh, Ephesus, 75,000. Uh, Thessalonica, which is a very important city, 75,000, give or take. Corinth, 50, 75,000. Rome is entirely different. Rome is a million people. It's the first, we think it's the first city in history to hit a million people. It's because the Romans are really good at civil engineering. How many of you got any, any engineer, civil engineering majors in here before I make this joke? <laughs> because in the engineering world, you know, you've got electronics and mechanical. Civil engineering, you only need to know two things, right? Water runs downhill and paydays on Friday. <laughs> the Romans were really good at civil engineering. Uh, and so uh, they, in fact, they're so good. If you go to Europe now, their aqueducts are still there. 2,500 years later after some of them were built. Uh, and so they were able to move water around and move sewage out. From the medical standpoint, water's good. Getting sewage out is even better. Uh, and so they could move both really, really well. So Rome, which was this little teeny village uh, somewhere in the middle of Italy, explodes into this giant metropolis. About a million people. About, and that, this is, you'll see arguments of, well, there weren't really a million, there were only 750,000. I'm going like, that's still a lot of people for the first century where you're having to grow all your food and import it. Uh, and so the church, early on, because people go to Rome, gets started in Rome. So Paul has not been to Rome. Uh, if we had a really good picture, my computer would cooperate, we could see Paul's third missionary journey. There it is. To answer the quiz, who wrote Romans? <laughs> Paul. Nobody argues that Romans was not written by Paul. All the early church fathers, 100% say Paul wrote it. It's such a Pauline book. It's very, he has a very distinct style. This book is it. So this is one of the few books that people go, ah, you know, because you, you'll see one of his disciples wrote it, or so-and-so wrote it and attributed it to an apostle. Everyone agrees Paul wrote Romans. And this is Paul's intro to, uh, he's finished up his third missionary journey. Here's our timeline again. So we're in this period here, 55 to 58. Paul, during this period of time, writes first the second Corinthians, and he writes Romans. All right, here's here's our here's his third missionary journey. And as you remember from the you know his first one, you know starts in Antioch, kind of loops through here, comes back, you know that he gets bigger each time. Second one, he goes all the way up here, returns to Antioch. Third missionary journey, uh, he's going to re retrace his steps for the first two. And it, it, this takes several years. Uh, and then the other thing that he's doing on this missionary journey, as you remember in Corinthians, he says, you know, we're taking up a collection. There's a huge famine in this part of the world. 
And so they, these are very, Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus are extremely wealthy cities. And the church is wealthy in those cities. And so what he says is, when everyone hears about the church having a famine in Jerusalem, they said, well, we'll contribute. And so now Paul, as part of this trip, he is going to collect on their promises. And so as he goes through here, he's picking up money that they have promised to the Christians in Jerusalem. And so you see, as he goes through this trip, which this trip takes about three years, he ends up in Jerusalem. Where Paul is when he writes Rome, Romans is in Sincrea or Corinth. These are, these are neighboring cities. Again, very wealthy uh, areas. Uh, he is, his plan is, I'm going to go retrace my steps, pick the money up from everybody, go to Jerusalem, drop it off with the elders. Who is, that probably includes James, the brother of Jesus at this time. Then he says, I'm going to Spain. Uh, he goes, I want to go to the western part of the Mediterranean where, as far as we know at this time, no, none of the apostles have gone. So Paul says, I want to go to Spain. So he writes to the Roman church, because to get to Spain, you've got to go through Rome, because that's where all, all the ships go to Rome, and then you'll go western. So he's going to show up in Rome. He's never been there. He wants to talk to the people and say, hey, I'm coming. And when I come, I'm going to go to Spain. We know, because we know the rest of the story in Acts, Paul has a problem in Jerusalem. He gets arrested. And it takes him several years at that point then to get to Rome, and then he has a trial, and then he gets released, and then he gets rearrested, then he gets executed. So this, is, this book is probably written AD 59, we think Paul is executed uh, somewhere around 66 to 68. So Paul is, in the last parts of his ministry, he, he kind of knows it, but he, he gives you hints of that in some of his books. But at this point, he's still thinking, I'm, go I'm going to Spain, because I want to plant churches in Spain. When was it written? 57 A.D. Uh, so Alaska, Nero is the Nero is the emperor, and what you remember about Nero, he does two things. Uh, early on in his reign, he kicks all the Jews out of Rome, uh, because if you're if you're you know a politician and you get into trouble, what do you do? Blame on someone else. Correct. He, so he got into trouble, he blamed it on the Jews, he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And we know that's where Paul meets in Corinthians, that's where Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. They're living in Corinth, they're from Rome. We know by the time he writes Romans, Priscilla and Aquila have gone back to Rome. Because we'll see in the 16th chapter, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, who are living in Rome. So they have moved back to Rome. So Nero gives up after a couple years and the Jews come back. A little bit later than this, Nero gets in trouble again. So who's he blame next? The Christians. Because the church explodes in Rome. And so he starts kicking Christians out of Rome, and then that's where you see the, the prosecution where they start going to the Colosseum, they start burning them. 
uh, Nero is famous for uh, Nero nightlights. What he did, he took Christians, dipped them in tar, put them on a cross, and set them on fire, and used that to uh, light up public parks. Uh, that, that was a strong message to people that maybe you should not be a Christian. It had the opposite effect. The church explodes. Because they said, if, if Nero, who people, he's seen as kind of an all right emperor, uh, but if he's doing that, and then the Christians, and one of the reasons he quits persecuting the Christians is that they don't rebel. They, when they put them in the Colosseum, Instead of fighting the, the gladiators or fighting the animals, they just sat there and prayed until the animal killed them. And so the people in the, in the Colosseum thought that was horrible. Uh, it was not very entertaining. They weren't getting their money's worth. And so Nero actually quits putting the Christians in the Colosseum for that reason. So that's the culture that Paul's writing in right now. Uh, So the original reception is the Christians living in Rome. Chapter 16 will tell you there's at least five. Remember, we think a church like Otter Creek, right? A bunch of people coming together on Sunday, and then you go back to your homes. First century, it's all house churches. So in a city of a million people, you've got little pockets of Christians all over. There are at least five house churches that Paul says hi to in chapter 16. There may be more. Uh, the believers were predominantly Gentile, uh, but there's a, a very substantial minority that were Jewish. Jews still live separately. And uh, by this point in time, the Christians were seen, early on, the Christians were seen as a Jewish sect, because by and large, most of the Christians were Jewish. By this point in time, most of the Christians are Gentile. We share one thing in common with the Jews is that we were monotheistic. There's only one God. Romans were not monotheistic. In fact, we talked about that a couple, three weeks ago, the fact that you were seen, your social group was the people whose temple that you attended mostly. Whether you know, it be Apollo, or it be Mars, or it be Diana, you know, that, that was kind of your social group. And so the, the Christians and the Jews were seen as weird. Uh, you know, Growing up, Church of Christ, you know, we're, we're always proud. Uh, King James says the, church, the, the Christians are a peculiar people. You know, we took pride in that. I don't think that was actually a, uh, necessarily what, what Paul was meaning at that time. Uh, but they were seen as weirdos because you only had one God. And more importantly, you did not worship Nero. That was a big deal, which is also why Nero took it out on the Christians is that they didn't worship him. Rome, uh, it's a good little picture of how many people have been to Rome. So to, to orient you, the everyone goes to the Colosseum, right? It's my, if you can go to Rome, you go to the Colosseum. Colosseum's right here. Uh, the Romans lived for baths and bathing. So, uh, all these pink things here, a lot of these are the baths of Trajan. If you're an emperor, you'd make a big public bath. And that's how people remembered you. So Nero up here, uh, Constantine, Trajan, Claudius, uh, all the different, uh, uh, Circus Maximus here, Circus Maximus for the Ben-Hur fans, that's where you did the, uh, 
the, uh, the chariot races. Uh, that, that was a huge thing. They loved chariot races. The Colosseum is where the gladiators were, uh, where the Christians were. You, you'd put criminals out to get eaten by animals, and you hoped that they gave you a good view. Uh, but this is the extent of the city. And if you've been here, this, this is not a huge distance. Uh, the Roman forums here, uh, right now, uh, I'm, trying I'm trying to remember where the Vatican is. It's, the Vatican's going to be right in here, if you've toured the Vatican. You know, it's not very far from the Colosseum. It's right in here. Uh, so this is a relatively small city for about a million people. Uh, a lot of baths, a lot of water coming in, water going out. Uh, in Rome, like everywhere else, uh, the rich people live up high, the poor people live down low. Because again, civil engineering, right? Poop goes downhill. So if you're rich, where do you want to live? On top of the hill. Uh, Poor people live down here because this is the river coming in. It's flowing this way. The Praetorians are the, uh, the guys, the Praetorian guards are the Roman legion. That's the police force, and they also protect all the government. They're also on the high side of town because they, they are not stupid either. So mo most of the rich people lived in this area. Uh, the poor people lived down here. The wall was here. Uh, but at this point in time, the wall was not important nobody's going to attack Rome because Ro Ro the Romans are powerful. So this area was about a million people. Most people lived in like three and four story uh, wood houses. Uh, so because what's, what's, what's everyone remember about Nero? What did Nero do? He fiddled while Rome burned, right? During the middle of this, Rome has a fire that burns down most of Rome. Well, it burns down all the wood things. The poor people lived in the wood things. Uh, so a lot of people died. So this is during the period of time that Paul's writing to them. Is Nero's the emperor. Uh, the church is predominantly, probably 50% of the city is slave, maybe more. So the church is primarily slaves. There are some wealthy people in it. Uh, and so Paul's writing to them saying, hey, I'm coming. And so what... Uh, he, he writes to the five house churches. Here's the 16th chapter. Uh, again, meet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers. Greet the church that meets at their house. It's, that's pretty clear. And then uh, these other guys live elsewhere in the city, and they have house churches. Uh, were there only five house churches? No, I'm sure there were 100, maybe more. But these are the ones that Paul, because remember, Paul's never been there. These are the people he knows that lives in Rome that I'm writing this letter to. All right, why was it written? Uh, this, this is the Christian manifesto. If you want to read, understand Christian theology, Book of Rome. This is Paul saying, here is what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, it really is very fundamental. And then he also gets into why is, if Israel knew about God, why doesn't all of Israel believe in the Messiah? He talks about that. 
And then at the end, very, very Pauline, Paul always has theology first and he has practical application second. The last three or four chapters, he gets some practical application. All right, structure of Romans. You, we were going to do the, the video from uh, the Bible Project, but Jane doing the orphan thing has my dongle, so can't play it. Uh, let's talk about it. structure of Romans. Uh, like I said, very, Paul always does theology first, then he does practical application. First 11 chapters are theology. Uh, and then the last four chapters are very practical, about love, grace, and then greetings. Your Bible may say that we're not sure about the 16th chapter. That's because we think Paul wrote two copies of this. We, we, we think he wrote the one we have, the 16 chapters, to the people in Rome. And then he probably wrote another copy and dropped the 16th chapter, which is all greetings to people he knows, off the general letter that he sent elsewhere to the Roman area. Because, yeah, if you're, in, if you're in a suburb of Rome and you're not Priscilla and Aquila, you don't really care about the 16th chapter because it's literally Paul saying hi to everybody. Uh, and so there are different copies, depending on the age, that lack the 16th chapter. And so most of the experts I've read say that they think that the reason that there's two copies is that there were two letters. One, I, the first 14, 15 chapters are identical. It's just what does he tack on the end? So you may see that in your Bible as a little asterisk, that early manuscripts don't have this in. Uh, and the easy part of Romans is it's all about S's. Uh, sin, salvation, sanctification, and supremacy of God. Uh, and then if you want to throw another S, the practical part of this is about service. So you can think about that. Romans is all about S's. So when Paul talks, he has a little bit of intro. Remember, the, no one in Rome has ever met Paul. He's never been there, other than Priscilla and Aquila knowing. But the, the basic Roman Christians do not know Paul. So Paul gives himself a little intro. And then, he, and then he jumps right into sin. Let's talk about sin. He spends two chapters talking about how everybody's a sinner. Because one of the big issues in the Roman church is you have Jewish Christians and you got Gentile Christians. And remember, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome for a while, so the church grew 100% Gentile. And so they had ways they did things. The Jews have now moved back, who are Christian, but Jews in those, that era still obeyed the food laws. They were still circumcised, another thing that made you a weirdo in those days. And uh, they still dressed in Jewish manner. And so there was a lot of conflict in Rome about, just like some of the earlier books, how Jewish do you need to be to be a Christian? And so the, the Gentiles are, are saying, hey, you guys weren't here for five years, and we did fine. And then the Jews came back in and said, well, wait a minute, when we were here, you know, like all churches, you have tradition, right? You know, oh, you know, my father did this in church. They were saying the same thing in Rome. The Jewish Christians go, wait a minute, when we were here, we met, I'll give you a very easy example. When did Roman, when did the day start for Romans? <coughs> sun up. That, that was the beginning of the day. As soon as you could see the sun, that's when the day started. 
when did the day start for Jews? Sundown. So, if you're reading on, on the first day of the week, when is that? If you're Jewish, when is it? Saturday, what we would call Saturday night. If Remember, you're slaves, so you can't meet during the day because you're, you're being slaves. You're out doing stuff. So you have to meet after dark. So if you're Jewish church, when do you meet? Saturday night, because that's the first day of the week. If you're a Gentile church, when do you meet? Sunday night, because that's the first day of the week. Because Saturday night's not the first day of the week. So they had the teaching you meet on the first day of the week. So you see the house churches are conflicted on the simple stuff of when do you meet? Because culturally, Jews meet on Saturday. The Christians, the, Jew, the Gentile Christians, meet on Sunday. And they both would tell you, we're meeting on Sunday. But culturally, they don't. And so that's part of what Paul gets to in the practical parts, is how do you mesh those up? So the initial church in Rome would have met on Saturday night. All the Jews get kicked out of town, all the Gentiles take over. They're now, they move church to Sunday night. The Jews show back up. And remember, and also remember, when you're doing communion in those days, it is not our little chiclet and uh, plastic cup. The, the communion meal was in, a, in the middle of what they called the agape meal. Everybody ate together. And in the middle of that, you did the communion. If you're a Jew, what do you eat for, for, sup, for supper? Kosher. Which you don't mix your meal. You know, go back to Leviticus and look at all the kosher rules. The Jews were keeping those. If you're Gentiles, you could stop by and pick up food anywhere. There, there was actually fast food in Rome. Uh, you, you, there was stuff that you could pick up. And so, where, and, and we talked about when Randall was here, where did all the meat come from? Temples. So if you're a Gentile and I'm coming to the agape meal and I need to bring my piece, I stop by and pick up chicken, lamb, beef, whatever at a storefront and bring it to... It's not kosher. And so if you have a Jewish... The Jewish church is going, wait a minute. That's not kosher. You are sinning. And besides the fact you're meeting on the wrong day, wrong day of the week, you're also eating food that's, that's not kosher. And then the Gentiles are going like... You weren't here five years. We're doing fine. There's a bunch more of us. Let's, you know. And so th those are two simple things where the Jews and the Gentiles had a big problem. Not because it's Bible, but it's culture. Mm -hmm. And so Paul gets to that in the practical chapters towards the end of how do you deal with each other in things that aren't fundamental. I mean, Paul does not, he does not change his fundamentals. Fundamentals are fundamental. There's, he, he is not a person that's going to say, yeah, I'll be, I'll be flexible on grace. Let me be flexible on uh, being a disciple. When Paul, throughout all of Pauline literature, Paul says the same thing, and how do you be a disciple? Same time, every time over a 20-year period that he writes. But other things, he can be pretty flexible on. All right. Any, 
thoughts, questions? All right, let's flip open your Bibles. I was going to say something about yes, go ahead. Nero kicking the Jews and the Christians out or killing Christians. I would think that would have a big effect on the, the slave master culture and it wouldn't make him very popular with his own people. Well, that's part of the reason he quit doing it is uh, if you're killing my slaves that are running my business, we're going to have a little talk after. you know. And remember, all the money is with the high levels. The, the senatorial class has all the money. The senatorial class, in theory, picks the emperor. He, they don't, but in theory they do. But they, what they do have is enough money to bribe the Praetorians into killing the emperor, which is how we, they got rid of Caligula. You know, just before uh, Nero, you have Caligula. That's how the senators got rid of Caligula. They took a collection up, talked to the Praetorians, next thing you know, Caligula's not emperor anymore. And uh, we're rapidly approaching the year of the three emperors. There's actually a period of time when there's three emperors in one year. Same, same sort of deal. The, the senators get together and decide that three emperors is not a good idea, and they kind of get rid of two of them. But a lot of that is economics. It's of, yeah, if you're killing my people that are running my business or you're taking my slaves out of my house, if you're taking someone else's slaves, I'm, I'm good with that. You take my slaves, I'm not so good with that. And that's what happens is that Nero ends up taking, taking a lot of people arresting them and killing them in various ways. And so, the, the, but the church ends up growing dramatically because the church sees that persecution as the fact that they're on the right path. That if someone as evil as Nero is, is killing us, we must be doing something right. And so the church grows dramatically during this period of time. All right, chapter 1, Romans 1. Uh, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus. The word is not bondservant. It is and it isn't. It's actually the word is slave. Sometimes our Bibles translate stuff to make it more palatable to us. The concept here is slave of Jesus. What Paul is saying is, I don't get to go. I don't pick where I go. Jesus push, he takes me where I need to be. So I'm a slave. I don't get to make any decisions. Jesus makes the decisions. Which is, because we're, we're, Rome's the richest city. So what Paul is saying is, right off the bat, you have to become a slave. That is not a popular, if you're, if you're wealthy, that is not a popular message. If you're a slave, what the vast majority of the church is, they're going like, Paul's just like me. Paul is a slave. The ESV says servant. How... There, there's some argument on the, the, the word is not there's a word that's slave slave and there's a word that's called bond servant which is where you put yourself into a slave like relationship that's actually the word post. so what he's saying is I made myself a slave to Jesus uh so it, it, but it's, if you did that, it wasn't like you could quit. I mean, it's not, you can't go, oh, I'm tired of being a slave. I, I need to quit. I, yeah, I know I'm a bond servant. 
You can't. You're, it's a relationship that's going to continue on. So that's Paul basically saying, I have put myself in a relationship as a slave to Jesus. So that, that's kind of the, the, word, the theology behind that word that he's picking. It's a choice. It's a choice, yes. You get a choice. Well, it, it, in Pauline theology, in Christian theology, you get one choice. Your choice is, do I follow Jesus or not? Once I make that choice, all the rest of my choices are made for me because Jesus is an example. I have to, I have to pattern myself after that example. I don't get to choose how Jesus related to people. I don't get to choose how Jesus acted. I just get one choice. Do I follow Jesus or do I not? And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. I have made a choice. I'm, I'm a, I've made myself a slave of Jesus. Uh, let's see. Concerning his son, verse 3, uh, in Romans, Paul quotes tons of Old Testament because you got a large Jewish church here. The Gentiles don't care about the Old Testament. They, don't, they haven't read it. Large Jewish, and so he talks about that all the time. Uh, concerning his son who is born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Again, important to the Jews that Jesus, because the Messiah has to be a descendant of David. So he's basically saying, Jesus is that. Uh, talks about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, to the beloved, uh, who beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And then his greeting, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father. And then I thank Jesus Christ for all you and, and you preach him. Uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. Sisters in your Bible is probably in italics. The word he uses in Greek is actually not gender neutral. It's, it's, it's the Greek version of y'all. And what he's saying, I'm coming, y'all. That means everybody. That's why your, your word is probably in italics. Because he actually doesn't say ancestors, but what he means is we're coming. I'm coming. All, all the Christians, I want you to know that... I am coming. I, I've been planning to come to you. I've been prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you just as the rest of the Gentiles. Uh, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Because uh, basically Paul, everyone, everyone in the church knows Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. The rest of the guys are primarily to the Jews. Uh, and so Paul says, I'm coming. And uh, we know that, remember, the map, he's in Corinth. He's got to go all the way back to Jerusalem. This is in his mind. And then he goes, I'm going to set sail for Rome. He does set sail for Rome. He's in handcuffs at the time. And he's, under, he's you know, attached to uh, uh, Roman guards. But he does go to Rome. Just not the way he thinks he's going to go to Rome. And then starting in verse 18, he's, he's ta talking about sin. Because that's one of the, the other issues is the Jews, the Greeks kind of understood that they were sinners. Because that's, that's a very Greek mindset. The Jews are again saying, I'm children of Abraham, therefore I'm special. And so Paul's about to say in the next chapter and a half, he's going to start on the Greeks first because they're an easy target. And so the Jews are going to be sounding really good by the end of the first chapter. Uh, 
the Jews are feeling pretty good because he's really hitting the Greeks and what the Greeks talk about. Then he starts on the Jews. Uh, start chapter two. Mine says impartiality of God is the high, and that's exactly what he talks about. Because he gets into the Greeks have sinned and fallen short, and all the Jews are going, "Yeah, I I tithe, I wear, you know, I don't I don't mix linen and uh, wool, I I eat kosher, I'm pretty good." And then he goes, "And not so fast." And then he goes on to the Jews and talks about it. in chapter two. He's talking to the Jews of going like, "Yeah, you have the law, but you don't obey the law." And what the law actually does is points out where you don't obey the law. He gets deep into theology. Now, because if you think about it, if there were no law, you can't break the law, right? If there's no speed limit, can you speed? No. Because whatever speed you drive is fine. If there's a speed limit, so in, you know, on 65, right there by 440, when it draws from 70 to 55, if you're driving 70, how fast are you speeding? Yes, because you're, it's, the speed limit is 55. So if there's no law, you wouldn't know it. And so what Paul says is to the Jews, because you have the law, it actually points out you're sinning even worse than the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have the law, and they know good from evil. They still sin, but they know good from evil. You guys have the law, and you sin anyways. All the law does is points out to you how bad you're sinning. The law does not save you. Obedience to the law does not save you because you cannot obey it perfectly. What saves you, given that chapter 3, how do you get saved? And Paul comes back in chapter 3 and says, uh, he starts at, what advantage does a Jew have? Is there any benefit? Uh, he says, and how are you going to get saved? Everyone gets saved the same way. Faith in Jesus. So he circles back around to the thing he always gets around to is that salvation comes through faith in Jesus. Not acts. The Jews are very act-oriented. Not sacrifice. Gentiles are very sacrifice-oriented. He basically says, your salvation comes through faith in Jesus. That's the entire chapter 3. He hammers that over and over again. And then he starts jumping in chapter 4. He talked 4 through 8 about sanctification. Once you are saved, how do you act? Uh, And so he spends basically five chapters on this. Of, you know, here's how Jesus acts. Here's how you're supposed to act. And that's where he gets into some of the back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles about sanctification, you know, it, it's about grace, it's about love. And then uh, chapters 9 through 11, he gets into why are all the Jews not saved? Uh, which is specifically aimed at the Jews, and then he, ha- he has this comment about there, the Jews won't be saved till it's the appropriate time, and then all the Jews will come to Jesus. There are a gazillion books written and papers written on what does Paul mean about that. I have no idea. Nobody, everyone I've read, everyone has very strong opinions on that. I don't know. I, all I can tell you is, after reading lots of them, I have no idea. I don't think, even when you talk to the guys who write the books, 
they're kind of going, yeah, this is what I think, but he may not be true. Uh, but that's uh, 9 to 11, as Paul is talking about, this is when we get to the end of time, whenever that is, the Jews are going to come back to Jesus. Uh, you will see lots of stuff written about that. Uh, and they're the same people who a lot who want to keep, who are very Jerusalem fixated. They use this Romans chapter nine to eleven to talk about that. Is that that when Jesus comes, he's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to establish Jerusalem. Uh, when we get to uh, when we get to uh, Revelations, we'll talk about that a lot. Where's Jesus coming back to? All right, and then so as we slide, and then the practical chapters 13, 12, 13, 14, 15, because uh, I've got like exactly two minutes. Uh, Paul, that's what he talks about is here's how love manifests itself as you live a Christian life. That's 12 and 13. And then 14, 15, he talks about here's how grace works. You know, you receive grace, you need to give grace. Uh, and that, that's really talking about the Gentiles and the Jews, how they get together and all the different issues that they had. Uh, and then finally he ends up with this uh, <coughs> we'll give you one last little thing in Romans 16. Uh very interesting. The very first part. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea. Servant of the church really should be translated deaconess. Because that's what deacon, or deacon, deaconess is a gender nonspecific term. There, you can call someone in, in Greek a deacon, male or female, doesn't matter. Uh, so what he's saying is that she, that term, she's a servant of the church, she's a deacon of the church. She's the one who Paul gives this letter to to go to Rome. And that culture that also meant she's the one who read the letter when she got there. So think about that. You think male-female relationship, how Paul is flipping stuff on its head. You know, because even to the Romans, women were, you know, you had a hierarchy. Women were not high in the hierarchy. Paul sends this letter to Rome with a woman. And so she stands up in, in church and reads this letter because that's what you did in that culture. The bearer read the letter and then would attest that Paul actually wrote it because she received it from Paul's hand. So that's the one that uh, I have chapter 16, I'm out of time. But that's, just take that, think, think that in your mind. Paul is sending a woman with his letter. He usually sends Timothy or Titus, one of those guys. He sent Peter. Rome with this letter which is probably the greatest the single uh, most concentrated Christian manifesto that's in the New Testament and so that also tells you how Paul when people talk about that Paul does not treat women well think about that the most important one of the most important letters he writes he hands it to a woman and she takes it on a, on a trip and reads it to people all right Next week, I think we're in Colossians. All right, see you then.